Uh, please turn with me to Luke chapter 1, uh, where we read uh, together. And if you haven't got a Bible and someone sitting next to you, it will be really helpful to be able to see as we go through this passage together. I was at the men's conference a couple of weeks ago and I bought a book. And uh, I saw lots of the men at the conference buying books. And I saw them doing all sorts of things. I wonder what sort of a book person you are. Are you a quick flicker? Oh, that's a bit long, that book. Or uh, are you a last pager? Now this ends. Or you might be, oh, there's a sequel. Must buy that as well. Or uh, maybe, uh, as today we find so often, you're a review reader. So this book here has got four pages of reviews at the beginning. And so you look at it and think, oh, Rico Tice, ooh, he likes this book. It must be good. And uh, you look at out, who else? Uh, Matt Smethurst, oh, it must be okay. Maybe you're one of those people who just wants to get into it. And there's that thing at the beginning, isn't there? The preface. Oh, well, blow that. Uh, the introduction. No, 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 no. Let's go. Let's go to find out what it's about. If you're reading a storybook, you want to find out who the hero is. You want to find out what goes on. You want to know who the characters are and so on. And you know, there is a, a danger in doing that because you might miss something that's right at the beginning. Something that the writer tells you in the introduction, which, oh, if I'd have known that, that would have been so helpful. And you know, we can go to the Bible and we can go to the 66 books of the Bible and we can go to the Gospels like Luke's Gospel and we can, uh, we can do some of those things that we've just talked about. We might think, oh, there's a bit of a preface here at the beginning. There's verses 1 to 4. That's what that seems to be. Uh, and uh, there's the next bit, the bit we read. But I want to get to verse 26. Now in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel came to Mary. Whoa, come on, let's get to Christmas straight away. Let's get to the hero. Let's get to Jesus. And uh, that's going to mean we miss so much, which is in this first section. We're reminded, aren't we, in 2 Timothy 3.16, a familiar verse to many of us, all scripture is given by inspiration of God. And it's profitable for us. And there's a danger if we just want to skip, as it were, as we come up to Christmas, we want to skip straight into the Christmas story. We want to get to, we want to, get to Bethlehem. We, we want to get uh, to the angels, and we want to get to the shepherds, and, and, and so on. We want to get to the central character. We want to get to Jesus Christ. Well, I'm going to suggest to you this morning that the preface, verses 1 to 4, and the introduction, verses 5 to 25, of Luke's Gospel, is just such a wonderfully helpful passage before we get to Christmas, which we will do next Sunday. So verses 1 to 4. Just look at verses 1 to 4 for me. We mentioned that uh, at the beginning, uh, that there's this man, Theophilus. We don't really know who he is, but he's obviously sort of sponsored Luke or asked Luke to, to write uh, an ordered account of the birth and life and death and resurrection of Jesus. And not only that, but in Acts, Luke continues, it's volume two. Uh, so uh, there the story carries on about the influence and the, and the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ 
going around the world, turning the world upside down. And in verse 1, uh, Luke says, inasmuch as uh, many have taken in hand to set in order a narrative of those things which have been fulfilled among us. A number of people have had a go at this, he said, but what I'm going to do for you, Theophilus, I'm going to set things out for you in order. And, and I'm going to make sure that you, you see and understand how things work out. So that's very important for us, isn't it? In understanding the Gospel of Luke. Because this is what, is, what Luke's purpose is. This is what he's going to do. Uh, what he's saying really is that you need all of what's coming to really understand the Gospel. You need to know the introduction. You need to know the preface I'm about to write. So in verses 5 to 25, there's like an introduction. If verses 1 to 4 is like a preface where Luke tells us what he's doing, who it's for, how it's set up. Verses 5 to 25 are like an introduction. And there are some important verses. And thank you to James for talking to the children as he did, as he did because he, he picked up verse 17. Can you see that in verse 17? There's a little phrase here. He will also go before him. Who's he? Well, we're going to think in a moment about the birth of John the Baptist. So he will go before him. Who's him? It's Jesus. This is only, the only reference in this introduction to Jesus. Luke is saying, there's things to know and understand and grasp, Theophilus, and to us as readers as well. There's things for us to know before we get to Jesus. One of the things we need to know is this, that there's a getting ready. There's a preparation. We've heard that this morning already, haven't we? Verse, verse 17. He is going before and he is going to make ready. He's going to make ready a people. So what we have in these verses is what God has said through Luke to tell us about what goes before Jesus and to get us ready for Christmas and for the Lord Jesus. So this morning, before we get to Christmas, uh, we want to understand what Luke is doing here. Verse 1, he says, I'm writing a narrative. I'm explaining things carefully. I'm giving an orderly account. I think therefore as a preacher, that spoke to me. What it said is this, if you're going to preach this, then do it carefully, this introduction. Go through it bit by bit so it can help us. Help us to be ready. Help us to understand what happens before Christmas. There's a number of things in it then. Let's go to verse 5. Firstly, God prepares for Christmas by introducing us to his chosen means. God prepares for Christmas by introducing us to his chosen means. Verse 5, there was in the days of Herod the king of Judea a certain priest named Zacharias of the division of Abijah, and his wife was of the daughters of Aaron. Her name was Elizabeth. You know, Christmas, the first Christmas, is huge in world history. I don't know whether you would have thought about it like that, but History has huge events, doesn't it? We can perhaps think of what some of them might be. But this is huge. Christmas. 
God is advancing history. God has a purpose in history. And how does he do it? How does he come up to this incredible event where God in the person of his son becomes man in the person of Jesus Christ? How does he do it? How does God make preparation for a people, for the world, to hear about Christmas? How does God go before him, before Jesus? What does he do? Well, God's chosen means are his chosen people. And here are two of them. Zacharias, that's the Greek reference, Zacharias. But in Old Testament terms, he's a Zachariah, exactly like the one whose prophecy comes, last but one book in the Old Testament, Zacharias and his wife, Elizabeth. And Zacharias is a priest. And his wife, Elizabeth, is a priestly line. She comes from the line following on from Aaron, the first great, uh, uh, the first high priest. And it just reminds us of this. Peter says, doesn't he, in the New Testament, you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a chosen generation, a holy nation, a special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvellous light. I don't know what history is going to reveal in its big sense or in its personal sense. Tomorrow and the days that come. But I know this, that in advancing history to the point where Jesus came, God uses his chosen people if you're a Christian think of your life and you think well it's just nothing really I'm just I'm just a cog in a sort of a big machine Zacharias Elizabeth could have felt that couldn't they they're just going about their task he's a priest in the order of Abijah there were so many priests that they had to sort of set them into ranks so that one set did all the duties this this month, and, and another set did it the next month, and so on. He was just one of those. And who's Elizabeth? Just his wife. And who are you? You're God's special people. He is advancing history through you. Number two. God prepares for Christmas by informing us about the context. So verse 5 again. Did you notice that? That we're in the days of Herod the king. When these people lived, it was in the days of Herod the king. God is going to advance history. and He's going to do it. And he's going to prepare for it by his chosen people, by two people simply going about their tasks as Christian believers. But do you see the context? It's in the days of Herod 
the king. You know what Herod the king did, don't you? In the Christmas story. You can look it up in Matthew chapter 2. When Herod the king heard that there might be another king, he ordered that all the baby boys under two years old be slaughtered. What sort of king is that? What sort of world is that? It's a brutal day. These are unlikely days. We'd say these are impossible days for Christmas to come, for God to do anything, for ordinary people like Zacharias and Elizabeth, just being Christians, to be part of anything. Because to be part of anything could bring you under the wrath and under the eye of Herod the king. And by the way, he wasn't really a king. He was appointed by the Romans, given, a, given an army, and told just to keep the Jews in place. No trouble in that part of the empire. You know, even their son, and we know the story, don't we? Their son was born, wasn't he? What a remarkable life he lived. His life was ended by not this Herod, but another Herod in the dynasty when his head, John's head, was paraded at dinner time. Now we look out, don't we? I don't when you watch the news, so often in the news, the newsreader will say, uh, we warn you that the next scenes may be distressing. We look out what's happening in, in Gaza and other places of the world. And we say these are brutal days. These are unlikely days. These are impossible days for God to work. Ah, but these were the days, the context of which was when Zacharias and Elizabeth were ready so that God could use them and advance his purposes and his story. So never is your personal context ever too difficult for God. You may, you may live in a, in a family situation where you say it's very difficult to confess my Christianity. It may be like that at work. I daren't say anything. I might even get sacked. We, we may, we may, we may feel that you know, doing open air like the guys do on a Tuesday and, and, and maybe doing what we're going to do on, on Saturday. Can we do that in these days? These unlikely days? These brutal days? These are the days in which God prepared for Christmas. Number three, let's go down to verse six. God prepares for Christmas by showing us the nature of of righteous living. Here are these two people in verse 5, and we're told something about them in verse 6. They were both righteous before God, walking in all the commandments and ordinances of the Lord, <laughs> blameless. What a verse. It's telling us that these two people, Zacharias and Elizabeth, were both justified and were being sanctified. 
What do we mean by that? Well, it tells us, doesn't it? They were both righteous before God. But there is none righteous before God. The Bible tells us over and over again, we've all sinned and come short of the glory of God. There is none that does good. No, not one. So how come? How is it? By grace you're saved. Through faith. Even that's a gift of God. It's a believing that Jesus, they believed the Messiah to come, would die for their sins, and they would be justified simply by their faith. It was a work of grace of God. They were made right by God, not because of what they did, but because of who they trusted in. Now we're in 2023, and we're looking back. And that's how we are saved. That's how we are justified. That's how we're made right by God, by trusting in the Saviour. In their case, he was yet to come. In our case, he has come. And by looking to him, we are made right with God. And then we're told not only were they righteous before God, but they were walking in the commandments of God, keeping his statutes and his laws. They wanted to live holy lives. Not only were they justified, but they were being sanctified day by day as they went about their task, as they prayed, as they sought to live before God, as they were able to read those Old Testament books, the only books they had, of course, in those days, and trust in the God who was going to send a saviour because the promise had come time and time again that he would that they wanted to be holy and they wanted to serve him and walk in his ways. How important it is as Christians, as God uses us in his kingdom and as he advances history and his purposes to live righteous lives. You can't do that unless you become a Christian. You can't be a Christian unless you become a Christian. Don't try it. It doesn't work. But having become a Christian, be a Christian. And here we have the context. Here we have the historical context and the personal context of how God uses ordinary believers to advance his purposes to something most wonderful. In this case, Christmas time. 1 Thessalonians 4 verse 3, it says this, but this is the will of God, even your sanctification. We are to be fit vessels so that we might be used of God. God called and chose these dear people so that he might use them. He saw they were fit vessels, that he might use them for a wonderful purpose. Who knows what wonderful purpose God has for you? Number four, by telling us about the deepest of triumphs, God prepares for Christmas in in this way, by telling us of the deepest of trials. You get to verse 7. 
What do we read in verse 7? But they had no child because Elizabeth was barren and they were both well advanced in years. They didn't have any children and now they were somewhat elderly. It just wasn't going to happen. Now, we might say, well, we feel sorry for them. But there are many like that. Sometimes we, we don't understand why that is, but it is how it is. And we have to trust God in it. But in the context of their lives, this childlessness was particularly burdensome and difficult. J.C. Ryle, uh, the commentator, he says this, the full force of these words in verse 7 can hardly be understood by a modern Christian. To be childless was one of the bitterest of sorrows. And if you know your Bible, you'll know back in uh, 1 Samuel 1, uh, 1 Samuel chapter 1, there is Hannah, and she is childless. And it says it gave her a bitterness of soul. And it was emphasized by the fact that her husband had married two women. He should never have done that, but he did that. And the other wife was a lady called Panina, and she bore children. And she looked down on Hannah. She teased her, and she mocked her, and she had a go at her all the time. And it was for years that she bore this. Poor Hannah bore this. To be childless was one of the bitterest of sorrows. If you know the Gettys song, uh, they sing it with Ellie Holcomb. You can listen to it. It's called Elizabeth. And it starts like this, Elizabeth. There is an echo in your voice I've heard before. Such emptiness. All the years of crying something more that's what it was like for these people this Elizabeth all the years and years of crying to God for a child and no child so here they were in the context of these days here they were serving God serving him well living out the Christian life but it seemed that God was against them but Ryle goes on to say this, a hand of perfect wisdom is measuring out all our portion. A hand of perfect wisdom is measuring out all our portion. It may not be childlessness with you. It may be. It may be something else. It may be something else that for years you've prayed about, for years you've longed for, and for years the tears have fallen. But listen to what Royal says, a hand of perfect wisdom is measuring out all our portion. And it's interesting, isn't it, that this, this deep trial that this couple is going through, and now they're elderly, and they're not going to have children, yet they're still serving, they're still loving, they're still in the temple, they're still being sanctified, they're still rejoicing, in their justification. You see, God prepares for Christmas by telling us of the deepest trials of people. And we are to remember that God's ways are often worked out in our deepest trials. 
our danger is, isn't it, is that we've all been Disneyed. So we all think Disney. And we all think, you know, that life's going to be princesses and heroes and everything's going to be wonderful and it's all going to be dreamy and magical and all that sort of thing. Well, here's the reality. The reality is two people who've gone through life and although they've served well and loved well and so on, they've carried a deep burden all the way through. But God prepares for Christmas with these people. And who knows, despite your deep trial, what God is preparing you for. They, like Job, said, though he slay me, yet I will trust him. Number five, let's go to verses eight to 11. We're just moving gradually through this, like Luke tells us to do. It's a narrative, it's an orderly explanation. And here we have verses eight to 11. And here is God, here is God preparing for Christmas by surprising us with unexpected blessings. By surprising us with unexpected blessings. So here we are in verse 8. Whilst they were serving as priests before God in the order of his division, according to the custom of the priesthood, his lot fell to burn incense. It was his turn. He went into the temple. He'd done this lots of times before. His wife Elizabeth was at home. He was serving in this way. Maybe she was in the crowd outside. But the whole multitude of the people, they were all praying outside. But then verse 11, what a surprise. What a shock. What a shock. What a terrifying thing. Could Zacharias have predicted that morning when he was going out to do what he'd done so many times before? Can we predict what will happen when we go through our normal everyday lives we, we, we read the scriptures, we pray, we go out to work, we, we wonder what will happen. God can surprise us. <laughs> he can surprise us. And he did with Zacharias. An angel came. And I thought this was a bit Marks and Spencer-ish, if you like. Not just any angel. But Gabriel. You see that in verse 19? The angel comes and he speaks to Zacharias by name. He says, Zacharias. Goodness me, what must that have been like for this man? Suddenly to be confronted with this, with this being from heaven. And he tells him his name. He says, I am Gabriel, who stands in the presence of God and was sent to speak to you. How incredible that the angel Gabriel, who stands before God day after day through the eons of history, is now standing before this man. What God can do is remarkable. Now, I'm not saying to you that you'll see an angel at work tomorrow as you go and get your cup of coffee. But what I'm saying to you is this. We do not know what God has planned for us for the future. And Zacharias was a priest. Zacharias was a man who knew his Old Testament. All the Jews knew the Old Testament, some better than others. And I predict that Zacharias knew it really well. And he would know as soon as the angel said, I am Gabriel, his mind would go back to 450 or so years before, 500 years before, in the book of Daniel, 
this same angel stood before Daniel in the Old Testament. You can read it. You can look at it in, in, in Daniel 8. We won't get sidetracked with it. But in Daniel 8, he comes to help Daniel with a dream that Belshazzar has had in the days of Belshazzar. And in Daniel 9, in the next chapter, the king has changed. It's now Darius. And here is Gabriel again, the same angel. And in that chapter, he speaks of Messiah, the prince. There is a direct prophecy by this angel of Jesus, the Messiah, who is going to come. Not only predicting of his coming, but of predicting his standing at the end of the world to judge the world. Now this angel standing in front of Zacharias. My, no wonder in verse 12 of our chapter, it says he was troubled and fear fell on him. Unexpected blessings, unexpected commissions and callings. Who knows what God has in his plans for you? You see how important this chapter is. It's not only opening up for us the history of what happened. It is telling us what God does in the advancing of his purposes throughout all history. Number six, we've got to verse 13. God prepares for Christmas by assuring us of the wonder of answered prayer. Verse 13. The angel said to him, do not be afraid, Zacharias. Your prayer is heard. And your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. Which prayer has been heard? Was it the prayer that Zacharias prayed this morning? Well, I, I, I wouldn't have thought so, would you? Because... We are told here they're now, he's elderly and his wife's advanced in age. Surely they're not praying for a child now. You know, maybe they're in their 80. I don't know how old they are. So which prayer has been answered? I think we have to say it's those prayers from years ago. Those years ago when she could have had a baby. Those years, uh, years when it would have been natural for people to have children in a family, when a couple could conceive. It was those prayers. It was that prayer. And what does this teach us? It teaches us this. God never dismisses prayer. He never disdains to hear prayer. He never drives us away from the throne of grace. And every prayer, every true prayer, is heard in heaven. Because Gabriel says, Zacharias, your prayer, by inference, you and Elizabeth, both of you, your prayers have been heard. So go on praying. Go on praying. Praying for what seems impossible. Praying in circumstances that seem so unlikely. Praying for good things. Praying for things that you know are right and true and good. Go on praying. Because God hears every prayer. It's well worth underlining, isn't it, verse 13? 
your prayer is heard. We could perhaps print that up and put it on the put it on the mantelpiece or put it on the mirror. Your prayer is heard. That's a great text, isn't it? Your prayer is heard. Not only does the prayer is the prayer heard and answered, but can you see what it says also in verse 14? What comes with this? So verse 13, when Zechariah saw him, so verse 12, he was troubled and fear fell home. Verse, verse 13, but the angel said to him, do not be afraid, Zacharias. Your prayer is heard. Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son. You shall call his name John. Verse 14, and you will have joy and gladness and many will rejoice at his birth. The thing is with answered prayer, answered prayer not only just brings the answer, but it brings the joy. Doesn't it? When in our lives, maybe we prayed only yesterday and we have an answer today, and that's a joy. But maybe we prayed years ago. But now we stop praying. But your prayer is heard. And the answer comes. And there's joy and gladness with it. In that song I mentioned by the Gettys, it says this. But you have lived to see that joy comes in the morning. Come and lay your head on his promises. It's good advice, isn't it? Lay your head on the promises of God. Because joy comes in the morning. And, and here, was a, a, here was a morning that adorned. A morning which was just such a, an impossibility. Our friend Lilius Trotter, that story we told a year or so ago, uh, she wrote, didn't she? He is the God of the impossible. He is the God of the impossible. Now he's the God of the everyday. He is the God of our prayer. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our trespasses. He is the God of those prayers. But here, surely we learn in this account here that Luke has written for us this narrative which tells us and leads us up to Christmas that God is the God of the impossible. And we should not stop praying for that which seems so unlikely and impossible. And God may answer in different ways. In different ways to the way we expect. But joy comes in the morning. Number seven, God prepares for Christmas by connecting us to the Old Testament. By connecting us to the Old Testament. Now, we're New Testament Christians, aren't we? Here we are, it's 2023. We're way beyond the Old Testament. We're New Covenant, New Testament Christians. But we could not possibly be so except there be an Old Testament and an Old Covenant. I'm all for giving out New Testaments, but I'm more for giving out Bibles. Because the story is the whole story, isn't it? There's a connection here. Well, the connection, of course, is Zacharias and what he does. There's the connection is in Zacharias' name, isn't it? Do you remember we looked at the book of Zechariah in, in the Old Testament a couple of years ago? God 
remembers. That's what it means. Zachariah. Yah at the end. Jehovah. Jehovah remembers. Elizabeth. L. E. L. That's Elohim. That's God. God always keeps his promises. Isn't it remarkable? Here is God preparing his people and is connecting us to the Old Testament to say, yes, we're here now in the New Testament, but how's that connected up? Well, Gabriel explains, doesn't he? Verse 15. This son, you're going to have a son. You're going to have joy and gladness. Many are going to rejoice at his birth. Verse 15. For he will be great in the sight of the Lord and shall drink neither wine nor strong drink. He will also be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. He will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. He, John, will also go before him, who's him, Jesus. He's going to go before the one who's going to come in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready a people for the Lord. And straight away, Zacharias, knowing his Bible, would say, that's amazing. For 400 years, God has not spoken through a prophet. And the last time he did, his name was Malachi. And the Old Testament ends with those very words. It is incredible, isn't it, to think. People dismiss the Bible. How can you dismiss this? That the very end of the Old Testament says this, verse 6, Malachi 4, and he will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the hearts of the children to their fathers. He's going to send somebody. I'm going to send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. Somebody's going to come and prepare for this Jesus. That's what Malachi had said, inspired by God. 400 years before and wonder of wonders it's actually opening out here it's actually happening you see God works in hundreds of years God works in thousands of years we want God to work like this our prayer is Lord please do this now and God says no I'll do it in 400 years time Our God is working out his purposes. This is the whole point of what Luke is saying. He's writing to his friend Theophilus, and he's saying, Theophilus, this is amazing. Read my preface. Read my introduction. Before you get on to Christmas, before you get on to everything else, you've got to know this. You've got to see this. The connection with the Old Testament. These were Old Testament people, weren't they? Doing Old Testament things. Did you see what they were doing in verse 5? Uh, verse 5, what a heritage, both uh, uh, parts of their of their marriage. Uh, she was of the, the line of Aaron. He was of the division of Abijah, the, the priest. And uh, and they were connected to the Old Testament in that way. But you know, what I meant to do to, is get to verse 9. According to the custom of the priesthood, his lot fell out to burn incense. So he would go into the outer, outer court of the temple. He would burn incense there. And the people, can you see in verse 10, they are outside. They're not allowed to go in. 
We're familiar with that from the Old Testament, aren't we? The high priest would go into the Holy of Holies. Here was the priest, Zacharias, going into that first part, and he's burning incense, and the people are outside praying. And that's the whole thing about the Old Testament, isn't it? The whole thing about the Old Testament and what we learn together about the tabernacle in the wilderness and what we see about the temple. It's only the priest who's allowed to go in and the people are outside. It's very Old Testament, isn't it? Very Old Testament. And yet what is going to happen here is John is going to be born and he's going to point to one who is the Lamb of God. He's going to say it about 30 years later. He's going to point to one coming towards him and everybody's going to be gathered around him and he's going to point to one and say, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He's going to be the one who's going to cause the temple veil to be rent in two, to be ripped from top to bottom. He is going to be the one who's the new and living way. He's going to be the one who's going to say, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. But if you come to me, I'll never cast you out. And the Old Testament will be done and finished and completed. And there's a direct line from Malachi, last verse, into this gospel account right at the beginning. It is most remarkable. God is preparing for Christmas by showing us how the Bible fits together. Know your Bible and be grounded in the truth that the gospel's not just in the gospels, but the gospel is all the way through. Their son, John, would be the connector. The connector. I had a job to do last night whilst the ladies were making their wreaths. Could I put up the Christmas light? You know what you do, don't you? You get them out the garage and you wonder when you plug them in, is it going to work or not? Oh, yes. And if it doesn't, you know, don't you? It's one of those... 75 lights that needs a new one on. You've got to test them all. John was the connector. He connected the Old Testament to the New Testament. He came from the era of temple and sacrifice and altar and priesthood and came and pointed to Jesus who was all of those things. In one person. Eighthly. This is the last one. The eighth thing. God prepares for Christmas. By pointing us. To the blessings. Of Christmas. The blessings of Christmas. All the blessings of Christmas. Surround miracle, don't they? You don't have Christmas without miracle. The world doesn't understand that. The world thinks Christmas is, is just all about drinking and eating and lights and, 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 and trees and all these things. We love all those things. But Christmas is really all about miracle, isn't it? It is the miracle of the birth of Jesus to a virgin named Mary that God becomes flesh and dwells among us. 
And here at the beginning, before that happens, is a minor miracle, if you like, is a preparation miracle. Here is a couple who can't have a baby. They are far too old to have a child. And did you notice that when the child is actually born, uh, or so when the child is actually conceived, and in verse 24, now after those days his wife Elizabeth conceived, she hid herself for five months. I don't know what, why did she do that? I mean, was, let's say she was 85 years old. Uh, was she afraid of people saying, Elizabeth, you're putting weight on? Just the sheer amazement of it. The, the sheer fact that Zacharias and Elizabeth had come together as one flesh at their age and, and, and conceived. It is incredible. It is a miracle. Now, of course, he couldn't believe it, could he? Zacharias just couldn't believe it. He says, I can't believe it. How's this going to be? We missed that bit out. We, you can read it. He says, how's it going to be? And the angel sees he's unbelieving. He doesn't trust. So he's struck dumb in a, a remarkable way. All of a sudden he's struck dumb. Miracle. Things happen here, don't they? And at the end, we have that wonderful, that wonderful time when the baby's born. And they're going to call him after his father. He says, no, no, no. Give me something to write on. Can't say anything, can he? His name shall be John. The name given to me by the angel. It's miraculous. It's wonderful. And uh, Christmas is miracle, isn't it? Miracle announced, miracle observed, miracle experienced. And here is Zacharias and Elizabeth knowing something of the miracle of their birth of John who is going to introduce us to the miraculous one who does miracles who evidences who he is by miracle and that greatest of all miracles he rises again from the dead well what happens next what happens after verse 25, after this narrative introduction? What happens? Well, in the New King James, it's a great word. It says now. Now. In the sixth month. Six months of what? Well, the six months since Elizabeth conceived. We don't jump straight into Mary and the announcement of the angel to her. We don't go straight to the birth of Jesus. We stand in the beginning of the introduction to see and learn together how God prepares for Christmas and how God does the same thing for us as he uses us, as he advances his purposes in his kingdom and as men and women boys and girls are brought to faith in Jesus Christ by the miracle of coming from death to life coming from hell to heaven coming from darkness to light even by a continuous